to America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, and on the Nachum Siegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Jason Greenblatt is in our studio. He's actually visiting our temporary studio here in Teaneck, New Jersey, to give me the opportunity to speak with him face-to-face about the brand-new book. The book is entitled In the Path of Abraham, How Donald Trump made peace in the Middle East, and how to stop Joe Biden from unmaking it. Jason Greenblatt was appointed by President Trump in 2017 as an assistant to the president and special representative for international negotiations in his role as the White House special envoy to the Middle East. He served as one of the chief architects of the Peace to Prosperity Plan between Israel and the Palestinians and between Israel and its Arab neighbors. He was also a key player in building the foundation for the Abraham Accords through which the United Arab Emirates, the Kingdom of Bahrain, Sudan, and the Kingdom of Morocco have normalized relations with Israel. An honor to welcome Jason Greenblatt to our studio here at JM in the AM. Good morning, sir. Good morning. So excited to be here. And uh, you made it really easy for me because I just had to sort of roll out of bed, go to shul and show up. I appreciate that. I knew that this Teaneck location would certainly prove to be more convenient and beneficial for uh, for a lot of potential guests. And I'm glad you're able to be here uh, this morning, we were actually joking earlier about the uh, uh, appearance that you were scheduled to make during the Trump campaign to Jersey City in our old studio. And, of course, traffic derailed all of that. So thank God we didn't have that situation this morning. So you are a gush guy. You spent time in Yeshivat Haaretzion in Israel as a youth. You point out in the book, and for those who are not familiar, you explain that this is a common occurrence for a gap year, for a post-high school year, uh, for so many people in our community. And it's funny that you end up up in the Judean hills when that area becomes such an important focus of yours and the Trump administration so many decades later. What happens after uh, you spend time at Jehovah Haaretzion? Where were you in college and how do you end up being a member of Donald Trump's team way before the White House was in anyone's thoughts? Well, I went to YU after Gush and then I went to NYU Law School, spent a couple of years at a big law firm, I enjoyed my practice and one day I got a call from a headhunter that there was an open real estate in-house job, which was very, very hard to come by those days. And I ended up getting interviewed and worked for Trump for 20 years, had an amazing, amazing uh, career there. I loved working for him, for his family. It was very exciting. And one day he ran for president, as I, I write in the book, the rest is history. It certainly is. That, so you start working for him in what year? About ninety January 97. This is way before he's a big television star, or America is very familiar with him at that point? People are familiar with him right. for different reasons. Right. He, he didn't become the uh, television had, star that he was. He had uh, not started The Apprentice or anything like that. Right, that came later on. I can and, and you had a role in any of that, or the whole television experience and everything that he was going through at that point really did not involve his regular day-to-day staff? No, he had a very varied business. Entertainment was part of it, so I negotiated the deal for The Apprentice. In mm. fact, I, I remember when Mark Burnett first came into the office, we met him, he pitched uh, Donald Trump on the show, Mark Burnett leaves, and Donald and I, then Donald and I, now President Trump and I, <laughs> and some of my other colleagues, we all look at each other and we think, who is this guy? But it was a runaway hit. You know, the first season was just so amazing. And then, of course, you can imagine the agreement that I initially drafted was pretty thin. For the second season and beyond, it was quite an extensive agreement. And, of course, then it uh, explodes into other areas, celebrity stuff and, you know, all the different uh, iterations of The Apprentice that followed afterwards. Now, you write in the book, and I believe I have the date correct. I'm sure you know it by heart. You write in the book about April 16th, 
19, excuse me, 19, April 16th, 2016. Am I right about that? Am I getting it right? When that, he announced his candidacy? That, well, I'm thinking of the day. Oh, oh, yeah. I'm thinking of the day that I was in the room with a group of Jewish journalists or journalists representing, you know, Jewish outlets. Let's, let's put it that way. This is in Trump Tower, right near your office, right? Another floor. Yeah, of, one of, floor below. Exactly. One floor below where you are. And the meeting is, uh, and this is how it was pitched to me, and I guess everybody in the room, we're going to have an opportunity to ask questions of this candidate. We're going to have a chance to speak to Donald Trump and see what his positions are on matters important to us, whether it be Israel, Jewish community, family issues, etc., things that are important. Uh, to our community. And we are gathered there. I guess there are about 40 people in the room around a very large conference table. Um, he's at the front, of course, and uh, making this presentation and really talking about a variety of issues. At some point during that meeting, someone asks him about policy regarding settlements. And for the purpose of this conversation, we'll assume everyone knows what I mean when I say that. Policy regarding settlements. At that point, if I have this correct, I'm telling you, I remember this so vividly. I may even have mentioned this to you at some point since then. Um, he gets on his on his phone, on his intercom, and he asks somebody to, to page you to have you uh, come to this big conference room. And you walk in, and you're standing in the back of the room. If I, I'm telling you, I see it as if, I'm, as if I'm there right now. You're standing in the back of the room, and I believe this was the question he posed to you in front of all of us. I believe he said, Jason, what is our policy on settlements? I think, I'm telling you, I think that was the exact quote. Maybe you remember it a little differently. But this is happening, and I'm, I come back from this meeting to my staff in our Manhattan office, and I say to everybody, I think I just witnessed the actual appointment of somebody to a position in the future White House, because until Jason Greenblatt walked into that room, I don't think he had a clue that he was about to be asked or about to be consultant, consulted on matters regarding the Middle East. Am I right that you walked in as dumbfounded as I'm describing? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I write about it in the book, right? right? And I had no idea what the meeting was about. I actually thought it was a business meeting. Oh, I walk in, I see about 40 people. I get asked this very sensitive question. And of course, I knew my opinion. And I, I suspected that Trump agreed with me because we had had conversations over the years. I explained that settlements were not the obstacle to peace. Uh, you can imagine some in the room were very offended by that. The right. headlines after, I think there was one headline that says, Jewish settler who totes an M16 gun becomes advisor to Trump on right. Israel. Uh, first of all, I don't even like the word settlements, right? It became a pejorative word. We should really call them what they are, which are cities, neighborhoods, and towns. Yeah. Um, I think people have a complete misunderstanding. But I will say, and I'll just use the word settlements for the purpose mm -hmm. of this conversation. It's a little bit easier. I will say that that followed me through the White House in many ways. The day after Trump um, actually won the election, I did an interview for Israeli radio and they asked me if settlements were the problem. I said they weren't. I turn on the TV and I see the, I think it was the State Department spokesman who, I don't know what he does now, his name is John Kirby, saying that Greenblatt has no idea what he's talking about. Um, early on in the White House, somebody issued a statement from the National Security Council that because Israel had made a settlement announcement that it was a very negative statement about settlements. And I was very upset because that wasn't our policy. The White House said, just take care of it. So we changed, slowly but surely, we changed the policy. But I will say that people didn't understand who we were, and there was a point in time where someone, some group of people from Israel wanted to protest my house here in Teaneck because they thought that we weren't supportive of settlements. It was, it was rather shocking. 
But I think we totally changed the conversation about settlements. I, you know, I'm not sure that the Biden administration is going in a different direction, but it's one of the most single misunderstood issues about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, as if that's the reason that the Palestinians have not sat down with the Israelis to negotiate in good faith. No question about it. And he was, meaning the president, the eventual president, was familiar with this whole topic, or the day that I saw you answering this question, is that the day he started to become familiar with it? He was familiar with it the way a normal American is familiar with it. We definitely had to educate him. We had to educate ourselves. You know, if I had come into the White House fully uh, using the education that I had, reading Jewish media, listening to you, listening to Malcolm Honeline and others, um, that wouldn't be enough. I really needed to understand from everybody's perspective all the issues first, including this very issue, before I felt confident to be able to make the statements that I made. The, one, my first or second week, there was a European deputy foreign minister who came in. Number one or number two on the list was con, you know, condemning the settlements, explaining how we had to put an end to it. I don't think the person went as far as saying that we had to demand withdrawal, but it's always the issue. So I said to the person, you know, that's not true, that settlements are the issue. And she, she laughed and she said, oh, Jason, I knew that you would say that because, of course, they get briefed ahead of time. <laughs> but once you push back on people and they, you know, they realize that it's a false argument, they, they, they take a step back and move on to another issue. Uh, Jason Greenblatt is here. The book is called In the Path of Abraham, How Donald Trump Made Peace in the Middle East and How to Stop Joe Biden from Unmaking It. Um, it was there a benefit at all to how far the the um, Obama administration had gone in its relationship with Israel or how, how much more separated the United States administration was from Israel on so many issues during that time, meaning that because of the deal with Iran, because of the attitude toward Netanyahu, because of the, um, uh, the, the lack of... Um, a veto on the uh, on the uh, resolution in the United Nations that that did not take place, if you want to call it a lack of veto, right before the Trump administration ended, uh, right before the Obama administration ended. With all those things happening, was that advantageous to someone like yourself who wanted to progress in Middle East negotiations, as opposed to walking in where there was not that much animosity created by the Obama administration? I think there was. I think the Iran deal loomed large. There's no question that every country, Israel and its Arab neighbors, told us that they had felt abandoned by the Obama administration because of the Iran deal. The Palestinians were silent on that. They didn't focus right. on the Iran deal ever. Uh, but the, I think the doors were open to us in a way that uh, was very, very beneficial to us. And, of course, Israel felt uh, very abandoned with that resolution. Uh, it was a very shameful resolution, and, and worse, it was done literally before President Trump walked into the Oval Office. Right. And there was no reason to do that other than his dislike or hate for Bibi Netanyahu. You know, they were going to make a point, and John Kerry's speech was just a terrible, terrible speech. Yeah, it was outrageous, and that's why the Trump tweet, and people have their opinion about Trump tweets, but the Trump tweet that followed uh, in terms of, you know, January 20th is, is, is not coming fast enough. I don't think I'm, I'm giving you the exact quote, but you know what I mean. Um, you know, was a real statement to, to those who care about real peace in the Middle East and those who care about the future of Israel. And uh, he used the opportunity of everything that was happening with the Obama administration vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israel to, to, to go ahead and, uh, and make that statement and to pivot in that way. Are you then saying that it is possible that the, the conditions that were laid out, specifically the Obama outreach to Iran and the eventual uh, Iran, Iran deal, is it possible that's what that is what ended up causing uh, better relations and and real formal relations between Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, 
Morocco? Is it possible that 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 Iran deal pushed those countries, you know, over the edge when it came to what they felt was their future in the Middle East peace process? Yeah, well, indeed. But let's take a step back, right? The Abraham Accords has many, many parents. And among those parents include Israeli diplomats and others who actually were floating around the region even before the Iran deal, starting to build small bridges, which is very, very important. But the Iran deal, no doubt, put um, lots and lots of relationship there under the table, as they used to say. And when I started in the White House, there was not even a glimmer of hope that the Abraham Accords would would happen. But week by week, month by month, we saw it. And I think the Iran deal was a big part of the glue that held the region together. And today, with the Biden administration saying that they're, you know, of course, Iran can never have a nuclear weapon. Those are words. You know, we want to see action. Uh, The issue is that they all still are very, very nervous because right now Iran is extremely close. There doesn't seem to be a plan B, although we never know. You know, I'm not in the room. I didn't like when people criticized me when they weren't in the room. It could be that the Biden administration and the Israeli government have a plan B. But I think it's pushing the region closer and closer together. So when the uh, UAE um, experiences all of this, the Iran deal, uh, peace with Israel, normalizing relations, etc., and has this relationship with the uh, uh, United States, and everyone is suspecting or the media is predicting that this is going to cause... Uh, an absolute, you know, firestorm in the Middle East. I'm not even talking about the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem, where it was predicted that there'll be riots everywhere and, and blood everywhere. I'm not even talking about that yet. But the the notion was, and the the media liked to trumpet the fact that uh, that if there's any type of of uh, formal and normalized relations between an Arab country and Israel, you are going to see how the rest of the Arab world, at the minimum, the quote-unquote Palestinians, are going to riot to the point and make Israel so uncomfortable to the point where they're not going to be able to continue you know, with normal existence. None of that ever happened. Why? Uh, people misunderstand it. They live in the past, and that's the reason that um, I write, one of the reasons I wrote this book is to myth bust, Right. All of that might have been true a decade ago, 20 years ago, who knows. But it wasn't true now. I'm sure we'll get to Jerusalem later Mm -hmm. in this interview. But people are unwilling to look past what happened in the past, look past the threats of the past, and understand that everybody in the region, except maybe the Palestinian leadership, wants to move forward. They want to move forward in a different direction. They have these amazing visions. They're changing their society. But most people don't understand that. So Jason Greenblatt is here. You know the the leaders of the UAE. Do they resent the Biden administration right now? Do they resent the fact that they're making every attempt to stay at the table with Iran and and arrange for some type of of deal to go through? At the beginning of the Biden administration, they certainly resented them. They had trouble with uh, the weapon sales that were promised by the United States. They weren't being supported when the Houthi terrorists and they you know they removed the des- the Biden administration removed the designation of terrorists from the Houthis. The Houthis fire rockets at the UAE and Saudi Arabia, the same way Hamas fires rockets at Israel. So they definitely resented it. I think they've repaired the relationship, so it's okay right now. But I think the Biden administration has a long way to go to repair the relationship with the UAE and certainly Saudi Arabia. Are you surprised? And, you know, let's not uh, let's not take for granted those that have already joined. I mentioned the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco. Are you surprised that more countries have not gone ahead and formalized relations with Israel? No, I'm not. I mean, I'm certainly hopeful, and I, I do believe it's inevitable. But at the moment, uh, you had the Biden administration until this recent trip to Saudi Arabia, totally disrespecting Saudi Arabia, saying, you know, that they're a pariah, they have no social redeeming social value, and things like that. I think President Biden turned the page a little bit. 
It probably has many more pages and chapters to turn. But uh, what's the upside? They all have a lot of things going on. They have a lot of goals and things to do with their country. And, you know, why do they need this headache if they're not going to get support from the United States? Ironically, the... Um, <laughs> the um, um I was going to say on the point of the uh, of the UAE uh, and Morocco, um, uh, there there was an irony there for a moment that <laughs> just escaped my mind. I apologize. <laughs> Jason Greenblatt's here. The book is called "The Path of Abraham." I'm assuming it's available everywhere. Available everywhere. Your bookstores, Amazon, anywhere you get your books. Um, so now let's talk about Jerusalem because again, the media brainwashed everybody into thinking that the world would completely explode if, in fact, the embassy was moved. If, in fact, the um, uh, the uh, um, uh, uh, the 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 promise that every single president, as a campaigner, as a uh, uh, as a candidate, had made for decades, and then rescinded that promise or didn't act on it. Uh, they thought that if, in fact, Donald Trump went ahead, President Trump went ahead and and uh, and uh, moved the embassy and endorsed the moving of the embassy, the entire Middle East would explode to the point of no return. Um, when the media was conveying that message to everyone, what was going through your mind? I laughed, as I often do with the media, right? Because I knew that we were going through the very extensive process to actually allow President Trump to keep his promise. And just remember, it's a two-part thing. It's recognize Jerusalem as the capital, right. which is important, and that happened in December of 2017. And then moving the embassy, which takes uh, a little bit more time. My friend David Friedman worked very hard to meet that deadline of May of 2018. And... Uh, the press had no idea what they were talking about. We weren't just going to, on a whim, do it. It was President Trump, of course, doing it. But we needed to make sure that these threats that people said, uh, effectively saying World War III would break out, right. were not accurate. So President Trump convened you know, all the agencies, got all the information he needed. But there's two things I want the listeners to understand that maybe they don't from behind the scenes. The first is President Trump gets even more credit than people understand because you cannot imagine the volume of phone calls that came in from world leaders, not just to President Trump, to Jared Kushner, to me, to the National Security Advisor, everybody saying, we know you announced it, but don't do it. Don't do it. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. So you have to be a really strong person to under, you know, to have the confidence to say, you're wrong. I'm going to do it. You're absolutely wrong. And here we are in 2022, and it's fair to say, all these years later, he absolutely made the right decision. Right. The second thing people don't understand is, you know, I, I've been through so many conferences and I've gotten this question from people who, are, who claim to be experts in the Middle East. And they always say, why didn't Trump get something out of Israel or give something to the Palestinians and take something from Israel in order to recognize Jerusalem? And the answer is simple, because that's not what U.S. law says. The Jerusalem Recognition Act from 1995, bipartisan, by the way, said you do it, recognize Jerusalem, move the embassy, and the only exception to that is if there's a national security reason not to do it. Right. Trump determined there wasn't one, but it doesn't say and demand something out of Israel. So even the experts misunderstand the law, which to me is shocking, and the media, of course, follows along with the experts. Yeah, now, just devil's advocate for a moment, um, you know, we've seen what provocation or the, the uh, myth of provocation can do to a region. Right. The Intifada supposedly began because of a an act by a prime minister or a, a prominent member of government in Israel. Right. And we could and, we, and, and whether we believe it or not or whether we believe the narrative or not, you know, this has always been um, uh, certainly one has been associated with the other. So to think 
that this type of act would not lead to another intifada or not lead to some type of riots or just random terror attacks, which we know how serious they could be. Um, it, it might be somewhat naive to think that. Now, you say you laughed at it, which I understand, and I get the attitude, but you, you had to have had in the back of your mind the thought that it's possible that this is going to you know, be a little bit of a rough period of time. So I want to clarify, what I laughed at is the media saying that we weren't going to do it, that President mm-hmm. Trump was going to pull away from his promise. Um, terrorist threats are nothing to laugh at. I wasn't right. laughing at that. But we took the best intelligence that we had, uh, and I'm not, I can't share what the intelligence is. President Trump analyzed everybody's opinion on it. Uh, we understood that the other countries in the region, of course, were very, very angry or unhappy about it, but they were going to do what they needed to do to make sure that things were kept calm. Palestinian leadership, of course, by then had cut us off. Right. Uh, but or, the enemy or, stayed quiet. Hamas did. stayed quiet. Iran stayed quiet. Hezbollah stayed quiet. Because in the end... That ceremony took place in Jerusalem, and... It was a really peaceful ceremony. <laughs> so the, the announcement of the recognition was in Washington. The embassy um, was in Jerusalem. Right. But if you remember, Hamas actually was firing rockets that day, mm. specifically to show the world that you know they still had power and that they wanted to protest it. And I was in Israel, so I didn't see the TV coverage here. But my understanding is that it was a very bad day for TV coverage because the split screen showed this beautiful ceremony moving the embassy, and the other side was Hamas firing off rockets. Mm-hmm. But we can't allow terrorist organizations like Hamas or their their puppeteer, Iran, to stop us from changing the world. And what does it say if I don't remember that? That's interesting. You know, like it, it was random, I guess, to an extent. I think what it says is you realize that the media doesn't portray things sometimes honestly, right? Right. 100%. Jason Greenblatt's here. By the way, the irony that I that now I recall is that now, as we discuss the Abraham Accords and the countries that normalized with Israel, uh, now it's funny that, that um, this is all happening with Saudi Arabia, as you described with President Biden, when all of us were waiting with bated breath that this is the next country that's in fact going to normalize with Israel. In fact, I don't know if you were shocked, but we as observers were surprised that the Trump administration ended without Saudi Arabia being the next country part of the Abraham Accords. I wasn't surprised. I think, look, I think Saudi Arabia has come such a long way. Every trip I take there since 2019, since I left the White House, I'm more and more amazed by what's happening in that country with respect to women driving, the projects that they're working on, it's its dramatic. In fact, I'll tell you, I, I'm, I'm still in Avalis. I was saying Kaddish until last week. I was in Saudi Arabia. It was a quiet minion, but we had a minion. I was saying Kaddish in a beautiful, historic site over there. And Saudis were sort of milling around as we were davening, as we were praying. And I wasn't at all uncomfortable. Now, you put me in a certain couple of cities in Europe in the middle of the street with uh, Europeans walking around me, I would tell you I'd be a little bit uncomfortable here it's almost like we're family, different customs. It's true. And people will need to get to know each other. It's true and all that. But the relationship could be so strong because we have so many things that overlap. You know, if I say kosher, they understand it. Mm -hmm. If I say I need a place to pray, they say, is this your fourth or fifth prayer? I say, no, it's okay. We only do three. Um, But they, we totally get each other. Yeah. I remember a kid landing in the airport in uh, Dubai 
and we're, which is the last time I actually spoke with you on the air, as you recall, and I can't get over the fact that you went out of your way to join us live in person that morning, which was so amazing. And uh, you land in the airport, and of course the prayer room is, I don't remember how they referred to it, but it's, it's prominent there, and the fact that no pork is allowed in one of the sections or however it's portrayed there, I don't remember exactly. That was a sign worth taking a picture of, etc. So yeah, they could certainly relate to us. And you just mentioned Europe and the discomfort. Is why do you think that the the EU is almost irrelevant now? Uh, at least that's my impression. Almost irrelevant in negotiations with Israel uh, and the PA, and just you know, in in terms of having a voice in terms of the future of the Middle East peace process. Um, there was an effort last week that we had uh, that we mentioned on the air last week uh, of trying to get the Europeans more in, by the PA to try to get the Europeans more involved because they're, I guess, wary of American involvement and whether they would be, you know, uh, sided or um, or, in, you know, favorable to the Palestinians. Is the EU completely irrelevant now in this process? I think they are. First of all, and I don't want to, you know, not all of Europe, but the, the traditional European countries that are involved are very unhelpful to Israel, very pro-Palestinian. Last week I was in Israel, I took a tour to Hebron, and on the way to Hebron, our tour guide was showing us these white uh, plastic things covering saplings, you know, young trees. Mm-hmm. There are, the Europeans are funding land grabs by Palestinians throughout Judea and Samaria. Others call it the West Bank, and it should never be called Occupied Palestinian Territory. Mm-hmm. That's a false label. And they're funding building of homes there because the way the land laws work there is if you build on it and if the Israeli government doesn't do something about it, which apparently for some reason the Israeli government isn't, the land eventually becomes Palestinian. So the Europeans are very, very bad actors in this context. I made a speech at the UN Security Council where I pointed, it's a long story, but the gist of it is I pointed out that just because the Palestinians demand East Jerusalem as their capital, that doesn't mean they have a right to East Jerusalem. There's no piece of paper that says East Jerusalem belongs to the Palestinians, yet everybody, especially the Europeans, keeps saying that. But you can imagine the reaction from some of the Europeans. Germany was furious with me. France, furious with me. The UK was fine. Um, They're just, I I don't want to say they're anti-Israel, that's unfair, but the way they look at the conflict is so skewed, so distorted, so uh, it comes from a place of a complete not understanding of reality. So I think they've made themselves irrelevant. Uh, One of the most intriguing parts of your book cover is that uh, you're actually uh, offering uh, the possibility that there's a way to stop Joe Biden, President Biden, from unmaking this whole process. Um, I mean, is there really anything that can be done to make sure that he doesn't unmake it? So he's gone through a bit of a progression. You know, for the first year after the Abraham Accords, uh, they didn't even use the term Abraham Accords. I keep telling people this. You should Google this clip of Ned Price, the State Department spokesman, who was at a press conference and squirming at the podium to avoid using the term Abraham Accords, (laughs) undoubtedly because he didn't want to give President Trump the credit he deserves. And there was a journalist in the room. He was great. I don't know who he was. Kept saying, but why don't you call them by the name? Why don't you call them by the name? And eventually Ned Price had no choice but to call them by the name. Since then, they've, uh, they've embraced the Abraham Accords. It could be because we had such a disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. They yeah. need this sort of foreign policy win. I think his trip to Israel, President Biden's trip to Israel, um, other than the Iran issue and the Palestinian issue, was fine. I think President Biden is not an anti-Israel person. He, he, I think he is a Zionist. I can't say that for his whole team. But if he continues to fall into these traps and disrespect our Arab allies and... Uh, misunderstand the Palestinian issue, and worse, try to bring the Palestinian issue into the Abraham Accords. The, you know, the Secretary of State Blinken 
at this historic Negev summit, when you had the foreign ministers of all the signers of the Abraham Accords, plus some others, said something to the effect that it's not a substitute, that the Abraham Accords is not a substitute to Israeli-Palestinian peace. Why are you putting it back into the mix? We took the veto card away from the Palestinians because they wouldn't negotiate in good faith. Now you're going to tie them back together? That's the danger in what they're doing. Um, the advantage of having a leader who is a businessman as opposed to a lifelong diplomat, lifelong politician, um, is one of the reasons this, this deal was made and so many other things were accomplished because of the Trump background as opposed to uh, so many others that have an, an exclusive Washington background? I think so. I think he was unafraid to break China. He was unafraid to like look at the so-called uh, talking points, the gospel, the rules, however you want to call it, and say, okay, this is the way it has to be done because this is the way the people who came before us said it had to be done, and this is the way all the experts say it has to be done. He's a businessman. He's an entrepreneur. He thrives on transactions being consummated, but that means you have to look at everything with a fresh pair of eyes, not get discouraged. I think Jared Kushner gets tremendous, tremendous courage. He's another businessman who went in wasn't afraid to break the rules in terms of saying, you know, that's not true. This isn't true. Wasn't the most optimistic guy I've ever met in my life other than maybe Trump. Interesting. Yeah. Just amazing. Anytime we hit a roadblock and you can imagine we had so many roadblocks, especially the Palestinian peace first before anything else could be accomplished. That whole mentality had to be broken. Exactly. And, and I think it took an outsider and, and businessman being helpful, um, to, to look past that. And I think Trump and, and Jared Kushner get tremendous credit for that. Did you disagree with the president on any of this? Was there anything that you remember when it came to Jerusalem, the Abraham Accords, his attitude toward the Middle East, uh, his meetings with Netanyahu? Is there anything where, where things came to a head, where he was doing something where you felt this was either bad for him or, or, or bad for the United States policy on Israel? Almost, all, almost entirely no. I think where the one time I got nervous was the Palestinians do a great job in marketing their cause, and President Abbas you know, despite what I know about him, and I'm sure what you know and many of your listeners know, does a great job. So there were times when President Abbas came across as being uh, a statesman, right? Uh, you don't, you know, it's, it's very easy in the Oval Office to look a certain way, to act a certain way, to speak a certain way, but if the president isn't briefed on what's underlying those words, then it could be a problem. And I think that we needed to make sure that the president understood who President Abbas really is. And by the way, I'm not anti-President Abbas. I think... He's not likely to be a leader that brings peace. Right. I think, uh, you know, I'll tell you one story that we had a particularly difficult meeting at the UN General Assembly one year before they cut us off. And despite that, President Abbas came up to me. It was just before Rosh Hashanah. He kissed me on the head and he wished me a Shana Tova. So there are sides to mm. President Abbas that people, at least in our community, may not understand or see. But um, I didn't want President, President Trump and, uh, you know, David Friedman and others, of course, didn't want President Trump to be misled into thinking that President Abbas was this, you know, real amazing statesman who only wanted peace. It's far more complicated than that. And President Trump, you know, I guess because we were close to him, understood that after we spoke to him about it. And we we needed to be sure that he understood the truth. Um, And it goes without saying, I would guess, that uh, leadership in places like the UAE, um, also you would describe as uh, high-quality people, um, you know, o- open and honest to, to whatever degree they can be uh, with, with diplomats and visitors from other countries. Uh, I would assume you've had you know, very positive experiences there. Only positive, and with all of them, with Saudi Arabia, with right. Qatar, with Bahrain, with every one of them. Kuwait. How many trips have you made to the UAE? Uh, gosh. Uh, it's endless, eight, right? Yeah. Uh, the region endless, I don't know. Right. But, but, but I feel at home there now. Like right. uh, To your point, 
they're warm, they're welcoming, they're honest. I think they understood that we had to trust the President Trump, so they were willing to be honest. You know, we didn't go into these meetings, maybe the first one, with the typical diplomatic talk, and you take out the talking points and you say the 67 borders in East Jerusalem and all the stuff that you hear, which right. is never going to bring peace. Um, and we had some honest conversations with them. You ever wonder if you would have been in the Arafat era? I mean, you just described Abbas in a way that I'm sure has shocked many of our listeners. I, I wonder if you would have said anything similar about someone like him uh, during that era. No, I think Arafat was a bloodthirsty terrorist and just wanted to destroy Israel. And, and proudly not, demonstrated that bloodthirsty right. terrorism. And I'm not saying that Abbas right. uh, loves Israel. Far right. from it. Uh, I think he's caught in a tough situation. I think if he made moves that would water down some of their demands, you know, who knows what would happen. But there's a side to him that one could appreciate. That's your point, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, Jason Greenblatt's here. The book is called In the Path of Abraham, How Donald Trump Made Peace in the Middle East and How to Stop Joe Biden from Unmaking It. Uh, You write in the book, and we're always fascinated by this topic, that uh, the president, even before he was president, uh, during your entire career with him, um, was very understanding about Shabbos, very understanding about Yontif. I'm sure. I, I'm sure a three day Shavuos. I think you even told us a story once about a three day Shavuos. Yeah, so was, was it Sukkis? Yeah. Where 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 the deal had to be suspended for seventy three hours, and that can be frustrating for somebody who likes to make deals, right, and get them done. It's dangerous. Deals could fall apart in those days. You know, in, in seventy three. Right hours. now, in that case, I guess it didn't fall apart, right? No, I was lucky. So were, we never were really you, know. Were, the were truth, you right? sitting in the Sukkot wondering <laughs> if it's going to fall apart? Can one enjoy Yontif when that's going on? Yeah. I, I was able to put it out of my head only because he was so gracious about me leaving. You know, for him, for a guy like that to say, go home, go pray, be with your yeah. family after you tell him you're disappearing for three days and completely out of contact, uh, out of contact is, uh, he put my head at ease. In general, I don't know. Look, I, I met him that one time. Actually, that's not true. I, I met him years ago at an event. Uh, he used to go to a lot of dinners that you know, for our community and was honored at some, etc. And was also very close with some of the government officials in our community. So people had a chance to interact with him somewhat. Um, but I, I think the way the media portrays him, whether you want to call it white supremacy or racism or all that, to me, it seems so absurd. To someone like you who knows him, it must be completely unfathomable. It is. And I get this question a lot. I was at an event recently where one of the guests said to me, how does it feel to work for such a terrible anti-Semite? And it's a, it's a shocking question, but I don't blame the person because that person is reading the media. Right. Brainwash. That's what they think. And let me say this. And look, Charlottesville is probably the go-to point that everybody makes. First of all, the media does not play the entire Charlottesville. Correct. Talk about Charlottesville. I want to see the entire clip. I'm not saying that his words were, Excellent, and I'm not saying he couldn't have done a better job and all that, but at least let's have a discussion about the entire thing that he said. Uh, because he talked about how the night before there were peaceful people. Right. And that doesn't make it. So a lot of it is distortion, manipulation, and I think, by the way, it's eroding public trust. There are so many people who simply don't uh, don't understand the media. They don't believe the media. There's a great Washington Post piece. Uh, it came out yesterday or today about if you look at the percentage of people who don't trust what's being said in the media – it's a wonder that they even stay in business. I don't think any business could operate the way, uh, you know, with customers who are so dissatisfied with the truth. I'm not going to defend every president, every of President Trump's tweets, every one of his statements. I can't, I won't. But I would say that so much of it is manipulation. And you're talking to a guy who worked for him for 23 years. I never saw an ounce of anti-Semitism. I only saw quite the opposite. Right. Tremendous respect for Jews, Judaism, Israel. And um, it's hurtful. Like, you know, that's just oh, I can imagine. manipulation. Do you still work for him? I don't, no. And that ended when you left the White House? It did. 
And did he know that it was ending when you left the White House? Did he want you to stay on in a business uh, arrangement? Well, the company wasn't doing deals the way they did when I was there. So there was really no, re no reason to have a deal person like me on board. If he would not have become president, would you still be working with him in a business capacity? I think so, yeah. Interesting how life is, huh? Yeah. yeah. Although these days, it seems people jump jobs uh, right. uh, very quickly. But, but still, the ones who were there for 20 years, yeah, you know, they no. seem to stick around. <laughs> I, I loved it. I loved working for them, with them. You know, it was, it was a great place to work. Interesting. Uh, and the family is a great family. Right. Well, yeah, they uh, they certainly seem to be. Um, it, the the Look, you write in the book that, you know, the family situation your life, your diplomatic and um, and governmental life was not conducive for someone who wants to, uh, you know, have an optimum family situation, which anything, I think anybody tuned in can understand. You know, you want to spend time with your wife and kids. You want to be around. There's so many things that go on on a daily basis that you want to be there for, and it's almost impossible. I mean, I can only imagine what the demands were on you. And spending Shabbos alone in Washington, as cool as it might sound to some, especially those in their 20s who are listening, uh, you could attest to the fact that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really down feeling. It is. Look, we, uh, I don't think we understood the lifestyle that we would get into, which is, um, thank God, I guess we didn't understand it because maybe I would have said no. Right. But my wife and kids stayed here in Teaneck. You know, our life wasn't set up for that. Every Friday, Thursday, late Thursday night, usually, my wife would drive down to Washington, the kids and all the Shabbos food stuffed in the minivan. We'd squeeze into my apartment. We had the most beautiful Shabbos. I don't want to complain about right. that. But, you know, even though we were in a one-bedroom apartment, it was an amazing adventure. But come Sunday, you know, if, if my wife was there with the kids, you know, we knew 2, 3 o'clock she had to start driving back, that long drive back, because the kids had school the next day. If I was here, I stayed a little bit longer. But... You really can enjoy Sunday. And then during the week, everybody's busy. So you're not, you're barely talking to them. My phones were always uh, under surveillance by other countries. So you don't even, you can't even talk about things that you might want to talk about. And my, you know, we had code words. It, it, it isn't the life for a family person, unless you're set up that way, uh, right. where I would have moved my whole family to Washington and, and lived a brand new life. Did your kids' classmates care that you were in the White House? I think some of them thought it was very cool that, you know, we actually were able to give some of them tours. Uh, my son had a birthday party in the bowling alley, which was great. <laughs> uh, that was a great story. I won't say which ambassador, but one of the ambassadors, uh, kid was at this birthday party because they knew each other and by accident left the white house with his bowling shoes. Oh, <laughs> so it's like, Oh, an international incident. Uh, <laughs> that's terrible. But, uh, and then, you know, there are those who didn't like Trump, uh, and were a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, thank God. I think I only lost one friend, uh, that I find hard to believe, especially with the neighborhood you live in. Yeah, this uh, this couple, uh, the, the the dad of this couple wrote a scathing email to me, having nothing to do with what I was doing. It was all about immigration. You know, uh, look, we all got this thing about uh, David and Jared and us. Always people say, you know, uh, the Esther story, right? Like you never know why. Yeah. But see that? Well, he turned that into the immigration. You're there to help um, people Im immigrate to this to country illegally. Country. I ignored the email because I didn't even know what to say. It was so harsh an email. And the next, maybe two shops later, the person was coming up the hill as I was going down to shul, and he crossed the street, avoided me, and never spoke to me again. Uh, that's rare. I want to say that's rare. I certainly walk into rooms where people are uncomfortable if they yeah. don't like Trump. But Does that still uh, happen? Uh, no. I, I, what's interesting to me is I, I speak in front of thousands of people now, and I would say half the people don't like Trump. Right. But most of them are willing to listen and uh, with an open heart and, and an open mind. And they may not vote for Trump if he runs again. And they may never have voted for Trump. 
and they may still dislike him, but they're willing to understand that humanity, life, president, everybody's complex. And there are sides similar to what, I don't want to compare to Trump, Trump to a boss, but it's not as black and white as people make it right. seem. So socially, it's better to be post-White House than in the White House. I think so. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and again, knowing, and, and i got to be careful, I'm sitting here in Bergen County, but it's, I think it's well known that there are plenty of people um, you know, with, with a potent political opinion on all sides uh, in this area. Um, you Indeed. Know, but I, but we, I find for the most part, other than that one example, right. uh, people, if they love him, they come up to me and they say that, and if they don't, they're respectful. And even in Shul... In New Jersey, when you were a member of the administration, you would say that things were relatively calm. I, I actually, my shul was extremely respectful. Mm. You know, uh, I mean, I did spend a lot of time with a friend of mine who was very involved with APAC. Maybe we spent too much time talking about Israel instead of davening. <laughs> but uh, for the most part, the shul was respectful, you know, uh, didn't, you know, didn't come into my face, not in a negative way. Uh, not in a positive way. Everyone was sort of like, this is Jason and, you know, he's here for Shabbos because most of the time I wasn't here for Shabbos and uh, the Rabbi Baum, the Rabbi of Ketat Torah was enormously helpful. I mean, you can't imagine the Shilas, the questions, the halakha questions I used to have to go to him with uh, probably made interest, it made it interesting for him too. There could be another book about that. Yeah, he was amazing. Uh, You leave the White House before COVID or after COVID uh, starts? Uh, Thank God before COVID because then I I wouldn't have ever seen my family if I was there for COVID. That's a good point. And would he still be president if not for COVID? I think the answer is yes. You know, it's, it's hard to tell. I'm not a political guy, so right. my answer is a bit of a novice answer on that, but I think the answer is yes. There was enough support nationwide. Yeah. Um, and even the efforts, you know, there were efforts on the other side to just, you know, do anything and everything to get him out of, of, to get him out of office. Uh, the, the, um, uh, the volume of voters that we saw uh, for Biden in the election was just, you know, um, I wouldn't say unprecedented, but it was obvious that there was a real push to get the vote out. Uh, I don't, I'm, I always wonder, like you do, like you just said, I always wonder how different it would have been if COVID never hit. Um, I mean, you drive here locally, you see the price of gas, um, you see what's happening on the border. You mentioned the, um, the exit from Afghanistan which was disastrous. I can imagine. I cannot imagine that your boss would have handled it the same way, frankly. Um, and uh, while we and the book obviously focuses on the Middle East and your role, there are so many things about this country that are very different. I got to be careful using the words better or worse, but that are so different now uh, than during his administration. Uh, would you? Ass- you're a businessman. You worked with him in business. Would you assume that the policies that he had set in motion that got us down to a dollar and a half, you know, gallon of gas and did not lead to a recession and led to an incredibly active stock market and positive stock market, would you assume all that would have continued if he'd have a second term? I think so. I think he was absolutely right on the policies. And here, here's what I wonder, right? Climate change. Everybody's saying no oil, no oil, no oil. So we stopped pumping oil in our own country. But then it's okay for President Biden to go to Saudi Arabia and beg for oil to reduce oil prices. Either we believe you shouldn't pump oil or we understand that, well, it's not great. You do need to pump oil until we figure out how to wean ourselves off oil. Yeah. But the, the not in my backyard phrase is, is remarkable when it comes to his uh, saying it's okay for Saudi to pump oil, but not here. Uh, it's some, so, so many things just don't make sense. Uh, you know, you can't fool all the people all the time. We, <laughs> that may not be true because I think the, so many of us are being fooled right now. Um, by what's going on, uh, blaming all of this on Putin and, and that whole narrative. I can't imagine, again, that your boss would have handled it this way. But No, I agree. And I, I want to make a point because you sure. asked about Europe, right? right? So 
Iran, uh, the Europeans are negotiating for us with Iran, not now because I think the deal is on life support, but for all this time we're relying on Europeans who don't have the same national interests as us, right? They, they just want to make money from Iran. They could care less if the Middle East is threatened, certainly if Israel's threatened. But now you have Iran supplying attack drones to Russia, which is using it in Ukraine and destabilizing Europe. The question for me is, are the Europeans smart enough now to get it, to understand that Iran doesn't just threaten Israel and Saudi Arabia and potentially the U.S., but it threatens Europe too? Uh, I'm a little bit afraid the answer is no. Uh, well, I'm afraid you're right. The book is called The Path of Abraham, How Donald Trump Made Peace in the Middle East and How to Stop Joe Biden from Unmaking It. Jason Greenblatt, our guest. The book available everywhere, as you mentioned, and I assume it's doing very well. Are you happy with the response? Thank God, and the press has been great, and great interviews like you, where people want to have thoughtful conversations, because that's what this really is about. You can't uh, analyze this conflict with those pithy words, the two-state solution. It's far more complex than that, and I think people are interested in it, and they also are interested in Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Qatar and all these other countries, which I cover in the book as well. And there's plenty of business to be done with these countries, right? I mean, you uh, would know absolutely. that at this point. Yeah, but we have to do it their way, respectfully, slowly, honestly. And uh, I think I'm, I'm very bullish on that region. I'm not bullish on Europe, but I'm very bullish on that region. And they must be, uh, and I'm talking about now the UAE and, and, and the other countries I've normalized with Israel, they must be very impressed with what's going on business-wise in Israel these days. They are. I, I think the two cultures need to kind of mesh. You know, the Israeli culture is... How do I sign my deal yesterday on a napkin? And the Arab countries are much more careful and thoughtful and a lot of face-to-face -face meetings to learn who they're doing business with. But I think that they're learning each other and they're going to do a lot of business. And, uh, you know, it's going from zero to, according to a UAE minister, he predicts $5 billion in trade. Uh, in the next couple of years. So that's a dramatic increase. I remember when we were in the UAE right after the signing of the Abraham Accords, uh, just the hotel experience. I think the locals were, were shocked at how the Israelis, uh, you know, some of the things that went on in their circle. I'm, I'm sure you've heard all of this. <laughs> and, and I think the Israelis were not uh, sure what to expect in terms of how their hosts behave. Uh, in the country, but all that takes getting used to, I guess. It does, but the UAE is extraordinarily welcome to Jews, to Israelis. Uh, you know, I walk around there now with a kippah, which I never did before, and uh, I think it's going to be a great relationship because they really are much more similar despite these uh, odd cultural differences. They're very similar. Can't thank you enough for joining us this morning. Thank you so much, and uh, good luck, continued good luck with the book. And uh, all I could say is uh, you made an amazing Kiddush Hashem, in my opinion, and I know that many agree with me uh, in terms of the way uh, you handled yourself in the White House and the way you represented uh, not just the United States, but I believe the Jewish people in all these uh, international negotiations. And for that, we are completely indebted to you. Thank you. I'm grateful for that, and thank you for having me as a guest. This was a great conversation. Appreciate that. Jason Greenblatt on a Thursday morning broadcast at JM in the AM.